Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Chris Bates, welcome back to the Property Mini series, mate. How you going? Life's good, mate. Just not much has changed since our last episode. <laughs> For those of you that are listening, we recorded, <laughs> uh, we pr- stop on the record and then we hit record again. We thought we'd do it all at once <clears throat> because we put it off a couple of times because I was sick, you were sick. Um, but mate, we're t- in this episode, we're talking first time property investor, basically. So um, there's a lot to go on here. This is about buying right, I guess, and how to think about uh, different assets and the different strategies for investing in property. In the first episode, we talked about like why property, and we covered all of the basics. So if you're new to the property investing conversation, go back to episode one. In the second episode, we talked about um, upgraders. So people that already have a property uh, upgrading their home or building a new one, what does it take to do that well? And what are the considerations? So this one, it's about buying quality. And something that you've impressed on me over time, mate, is basically don't go big necessarily. Don't just buy everything. Uh, it can be alluring to do that. It can feel, you know, we see people in the news that wear uh, sandals on t- television shows and they have, they claim to have property portfolios of 200, uh, you know, properties in there. Um, why is it important to basically focus on quality is the strategy? I mean, yeah, nothing wrong with sandals, though. I think that's that's pretty sexy. I mean, uh, <laughs> just watching We Crashed on uh, Apple and uh, they didn't wear any shoes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we saw how that ended up. But, I mean, you're absolutely right. The people who go down this quantity strategy, uh, and we've seen, um, I've been talking about property all day, every day since 2012. And, you know, especially in the last, you know, since I started the business over the last you know, eight years, but especially in the last three to four years, um, and we've seen thousands and thousands of people, right? And, and those people very rarely ever do well. If they have done well, it's usually off one or two assets and they've done it a long time. So they've had a couple of market cycles that two properties have done really well. And the other ones have potentially done all right recently because of low interest rates, um, but they haven't been driven up by high incomes. They haven't been, they've just been driven up by ridiculous amount of demand. So, I mean, the first time investor, I mean, it's a really good place to be. If you're thinking about it, it's a good time. If you're sort of thinking about it three years later and go, I wish I knew, should have known that when I bought my first property, you might be feeling a bit of pain. But mm. um, it's a really, it's where we see a lot of people go wrong. Um, and I think first home buyers should think like first time investors, right? They need to, because if, especially if it's your first property, it matters the most, um, yeah. you know, because you're putting all your cash in there. You've saved hard. It's really hard to save money in your 20s, right? And um, incomes are not really high. You've got, um, if you're not living at home, you've got to pay rent. And um, so you've worked hard, you've saved hard, um, and then you go put it all in a property and you really need that money to grow um, because you're not going to leave that property forever and you need that. And so first-time buyers need to get into the mindset of a first-time investor. Yeah, I'm going to potentially live in it for tax reasons and maybe lifestyle reasons, but ultimately I'm doing this to grow my wealth. So I can do more things in the future. I've got more options when I meet a partner, when we have kids or et cetera. So some, some time- people treat that, sorry, Matt, I'm just going to drop. Some people treat it like I can, I've just got, you know, I've saved up after all this time, I've saved up my deposit, but I can't afford that nice thing. I'm just going to buy an apartment. Yeah. And I feel like that's a classic mistake for that younger demographic that are moving into property. Yeah. So it's not to say all apartments are bad, but then they go and yeah. buy, you're right. They, they're living and renting in an area that's high density where it's easy to rent. And, oh, why am I wasting money on rent? Oh, I could be paying off a mortgage. The parents are in the ears, the brother and sister, the 
at the water cooler. Um, not that they happen anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, people, the society's in the air, the media. Oh, why are you wasting money on rent? It's dead money, etc. Why don't you just buy that apartment? And oh, you know what? It's actually quite easy to buy. You know, the landlord wants to sell it. You know, there's actually four others in my apartment building. Well, I'll just go buy it. You know, etc. And that's a classic mistake that people do make. You know, if you're in a property that's not a great asset uh, and it's easy to rent, and you have, then just rent that if you want to live there and go and invest your money elsewhere. Um, and and um, etc. So yeah, the first time investor is a big one. I think if you've if you've got an asset. Um, and, you know, you've, you've got an asset growing for you, you're happy there, you're not thinking about upgrading and you've thought that through, you're on top of your mortgage, you're really smashing it down, you've got good incomes and you can kind of go and buy an investment, um, then absolutely, you know, it still allows you to leverage your money further because you've only maybe got a certain amount of equity in your property, but then you could potentially, because you've got good incomes, potentially use that, you know, 150, 200 grand of equity and then go and buy another one or $1.2 million property with that equity rather than, say, buying 150 or 200 grand of shares. So that's why it makes sense for them to then go and look at property. The other reason it makes sense is that they don't have to put any cash involved. You know, you can use all the equity in your home to cover the deposit and then, you know, you borrow 80% on it at at the, you know, a new bank, for example. So let's... So first time, let's let's, let's uh, maybe I can be a, a bit of the the guinea pig here. So we've bought a house um, about an hour outside of Melbourne. I would say it's a high quality asset. I feel like we bought it at a very good price. Um, we've obviously done a bit of work to it, upgraded it a little bit ourselves, um, and now you know I've got equity in the home, and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I can use the equity um, to do something with that. What are the things that I should be thinking about? Should I be like, you know, maybe it's very simple. Should I be buying in the same area? Sort of consider buying interstate? Should I, like, what are some of the things that I can think so about? So that's probably a bit further down thinking down the line. The first thing you want to do is just get a reality check on how much equity, you know, you think you've got versus what you actually have, right? Mm-hmm. And the first thing, the way that we do that is that um, we'll do a valuation on your property. And, you know, everyone overvalues what, uh, values what they own, right? You know, whether it's a car, yep. whether it's shares or whether it's property or a watch, um, we all think it's worth more. And you ask the same question, would you pay that to buy it? Uh, well, no. Well, you're probably overvaluing it. Anyway, but the first thing is you probably think it's going to, but secondly, inherently there is a problem in the system. Valuers think the opposite. They undervalue. Yeah. You know, We always get clients pissed off with evaluation. We had one yesterday. Um, and, you know, but sometimes they get surprised and we get a great valuation, but that's a rarity. The reality is most of the time the client's disappointed and the equity you think you have isn't as much. So, for example, you think, oh, it's worth a million dollars. We'd order valuation. Now, valuations are free. You know, we order them through the bank. It doesn't cost you anything, right? Um, yeah, got to be careful when you order them. You sometimes can't order them multiple times. Like, oh, that was a poor one. I'll order another one next week. You know, there's sometimes there's limits on how many you can do per time frame. That depends on banks. But you order a valuation. Um, someone will come around to your house. They'll spend three minutes in it, take a couple of photos at best. Um, they'll do. I'm surprised how long that, how quickly it. They, they did stay at your house They're in and out before you even blinked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going to sit and have breakfast with you and, and, and hear your life story and listen to your comparables and you tell them why it's worth a million dollars. Um, They're in and out. They take us a photo. They've got, they've got a busy day. They've got time travel and all that sort of stuff. And they probably, they don't get paid much, right? You know, we can order them free from the bank. I think they, you know, once the, and the person actually doing the valuation doesn't get paid much because then the bank, you know, the the, uh, the business makes a lot of money, et cetera. And they've got KPIs so they make more money, et cetera. So, yeah, you got to put yourself in the value issues a little bit. Um, 
it's important to make it easy for the value up. So you definitely want to have the place tidy and make sure it presents well. That's definitely a mistake um, people make mm. is they don't give that first impression. Don't show the property off in its best light. Don't do it at the right time of day, et cetera. But anyway, you think it's worth a million dollars. The valuer comes in, they say 900. And that's just, that is quite common. That's not us being, you know, they, they, um, you know, they're usually, you know, five, 10% under what you think it's worth, right? And you're probably overvaluing it a little bit as well. So it's worth 900. The bank will say, well, we'll lend you up to 80% on what that is. So if your loan was 500,000, well, things are good, right? 900,000 times 80% 720, your loan's 500. So you've got 220 grand of equity. But before you did that valuation, and if you didn't understand what 80% was, why the bank's only lent to 80%, you thought you had $500,000. Well, now you've only got 220 of equity. And the reason the banks will lend up to 80% is because they're protected with the low valuation, but they're also protected because if you borrow up to 80%, if you don't pay your mortgages and you default, the bank could do a fire sale on that and sell it for 10, 15% under and still not lose money. And you'd lose it all, to be honest. But that's why they'll lend to 80%. Catch 22 on this, though, is that um, sometimes clients who have paid mortgage insurance, lenders mortgage insurance, you can re-borrow more than 80% and reuse your mortgage insurance that you paid to allow uh-huh. you to borrow more than 80% because um, the mortgage insurance is paid on a prop per property at a certain institution. Um, but if you refinance, you lose that benefit. Sometimes you can borrow more than 80% to release equity to um, and pay mortgage insurance. We very rarely would recommend that to someone, but it's an option. So generally speaking, equity is up to 80% of the property value. Um, what you then want to say is, okay, well, that certain amount of equity I want that to cover at least a 10% deposit plus 5% for stamp duty, ideally a 20% deposit on the next property plus stamp duty. Um, but then how much money can I borrow on top of that? And that's when you really need to understand your borrowing capacity um, and how much more you can borrow on top of your current home loan. Um, and uh, that will then determine of where to potentially look for an investment because you go, well, my certain deposit plus how much I can borrow gives me a certain budget. Where in Australia would be a good place for that budget? Um, or should I not invest? Should I wait till I've got more equity or should I've got more borrowing capacity? Because then I'll have a better budget in, you know, 12 months time. Um, or maybe I should wait because, you know, where the market is or clarity, et cetera. Um, and so there's many steps. So the first step is just figuring out your equity and your borrowing capacity for most people. Um, do a lot of people get to this stage and they realize they've got some equity and instead of maybe they come to you and they say, oh, instead of buying a property, I might just put hundred grand in shares. Uh, yeah, and I think it does make sense, especially when you know you're not going to go and buy a quality asset, right? Um, so maybe they go, oh, I've got 200 grand of um, equity, um, but my income's I've got actually quite a big mortgage. So I took out a million dollar mortgage, um, and my place has gone from 1.2 to 1.8. Uh, I've got heaps of equity, but my income's are only 150, 170 grand a year. Well, you know what? You can probably only release a couple hundred grand, and you, you can't buy an investment property worth buying. So. Um, absolutely, they can look at shares. The key thing, I guess, there is that um, is if you in that situation, they've still got lots of equity, and they're still going to potentially have enough equity to go and do an investment property if their incomes go up in the future. Um, you just want to be careful. You don't want to go and put all your money in shares, use all your equity, um, and then your incomes go up, and you go, you know what? Maybe we should buy an investment property because I can leverage that equity a lot more. Um, then you got to sell down your share portfolio, and then you're potentially playing in the markets over a short time frame, um, which we all know is um, yep. yeah, we all know. We all know the dangers of yeah short-term investing in the, in the share market. Yep. Yeah. So how about then? Okay, so um, like, can you paint the picture again of what might be a, a quality investment, like a first-time investment? Like if you're going to picture a, a property in your house, what does it look like? 
Look, I think what people do is they um, naturally are doing, you know, paying off their mortgage, they build a bit of equity, and then they go, let's get an investment property. Let's mm. not get a quality investment property. Let's just get an investment property. And that's the mindset problem, right, is let's just get an asset. Um, and let's just get something that washes its face. It's not going to cost us any money. Um, they, you know, there's so much things around there, positive cash flow, et cetera. Um, and they end up just going and getting a property. Then, th- you know, 87% of property investors, this is called nine out of 10, only buy one property. The reason is that it's not working for them. Uh, and end up selling that property, you know, five, 10 years later and they go, oh, we didn't actually make that much money once we paid for the maintenance and we had, didn't have a tenant for six months and um, we had 5% to buy it, et cetera. So that's the, what most property investors do. Very few investors, we think, you know, then go and buy a quality asset and then go and get another one, et cetera, because they don't go in there with the right mindset. They just go in there to get a property, to tick that box a little bit. A little bit like the portfolio investor, which we'll talk about next. I feel like they do the, the, the tick the box as well. They're very quick to tell you how many properties they've got. But how much are those properties worth? You know, how much have they gone up? Those are the answers they don't generally want to talk about. You know, they want to talk about the number of properties and tell everyone their friends how many numbers of properties they've got, not the quality of the properties behind it. And so um, the big mistake I think what people make here is that, you know, if you have got decent equity and you've got decent borrowing capacity, is to not waste the opportunity and think, well, be conservative and buy a cheaper asset. For example, I had a client a couple of years ago. Um, where um, they didn't buy an investment property in the end. And the wife was really keen on just buying an apartment, doing something cheap and easy um, because it's just so they could just say they've got a property. We don't want to spend much. They could borrow, you know, to get to a quality asset. And I was like, well, really, you're going to buy, and this is into the Sutherland Shire, into the apartment market, probably the bottom end of the apartment market. And they didn't, they wanted a bargain mentality. And that's a big mistake investors make is they, Try to just get a bargain rather than get something that's quality. It's same as, you know, in stocks, et cetera, right? Um, and I was like, no, 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 get into the housing market down there. You know, get into, you know, you've got the capacity. You're almost debt-free. You've got great incomes. You've, um, oh, no, we've got high cash flow costs, et cetera. Um, and, you know, they didn't end up doing anything as well. But, you know, if they just went and got, and they could afford to do it, got a house down there, you know, obviously we know what houses in the show I've done, for example. Um, and so I, I'd say that, you know, my advice is to people is to not think, oh, and there's a lot of books around there, a lot of beliefs that, you know, just I want three properties in five years. So I want to retire with four and then sell two to, to pay off the other two, et cetera. Focus on just getting one or two quality assets um, and things that will really grow a lot over the longer term. And, I mean, did you want me to talk about what was a quality asset as well? Was that the Yeah, the I think that just, just to loop that back through here, just yeah. in case anyone doesn't listen to the first episode and they're yeah. thinking, okay, what, what does he mean by quality? Yeah. So it's 2022 right now and it's difficult right now because – a, everything's gone up a lot in 2021, and B, um, the world's changed. You know, interest rates are likely to go up a lot, um, and you know, and so quality assets are much more expensive than they were in 2021. But the, the temptation is right now is to go and buy something that's not quality because it hasn't gone up as much, but it didn't go up under low interest rates. Why is it going to go up when rates jump to four percent, right? Um, and so the, the, it is really hard right now to buy a quality asset, and it's really. And this is where a lot of investors we say, you know what? I just don't think it, you should wait, and, and or maybe you should just focus on paying your mortgage off or maximise your supers, etc. It's not a case of just everyone should just go and buy an asset. Now, what is a quality asset? So, what you want to do is obviously buy something that's got restricted supply, and so you know we generally more favoured towards the housing market than say apartments and you know, townhouses and, you know, new house and land packages, more established housing. 
Um, and you want to be in areas that high-income families want to live, right? And so the good thing with COVID is change the ways around remote work and uh, flexible work, et cetera, whereas pre-COVID, everyone wanted to live around the inner ring because the number one thing they cared about was minimising the commute so they could spend more time with their families, right? Um, mm. And, you know, they could work a little bit later and get the promotion, et cetera, Um and so prices of properties were around the city were obviously the most expensive and it was like a ripple effect. COVID meant that people obviously went to the regions and so you can buy quality assets in these places as well. Um, but, yeah, you want something that's restricted supply but also really appeals to high-income families and where they can't build more of them. And as over time more and more people move to the country, more and more wage growth, capitalism forces wage growth to a certain population, which is the high incomes, as they get to a certain stage of life, they compete and push up these assets. And so that's fundamentally what it is. But it just that can't just be the suburb. So it can't just be, well, I want to live, they want to live in a certain suburb. Um, you then need to get the things right in that suburb. So, okay, we know high-income families want to live here. Um, we know there's restricted supply because it's right near the water and it's covered by surrounded par national parks and they can't build anymore in this location. But then you don't go and make a mistake and buy on the busy road you know, or the south-facing block that's got really noisy issues and privacy issues and it's got a weird floor plan and the block's really sloping and it's unusable. And um, and so, yeah, you've got the macro level, the high level, getting the mm. right suburb, and then you've got the micro level, getting the right property within the suburb that isn't compromised in some way, that isn't going to turn buyers off um, because something about it just doesn't appeal um, to that market. How about then, let's just, just run through some counterpoints. Maybe I'll just throw some ideas at you. Yeah. So what about if I'm a first-time investor and I'm thinking I might go buy like in a beach house type uh, yep. suburb, you know, down by the bay. You know, I can always rent it out on Airbnb. Yep, absolutely. We get this all the time, right? Even yesterday, client uh, in Melbourne, um, you know, lives on the, the Sandringham line, but mm -hmm. they, you know, wanted to either go uh, Inverloch or, you know, down Mornington, right? And um, you can, can afford to do it. But my view on this is, and is pre-COVID, it was pretty, the, the, what was driving those markets was second homes and holiday homes, right? Um, and those markets were always limited. And usually in GFC type events, those things get really, you know, people sell their holiday home. They don't sell their home, right? That's it, yeah. And they, got, they get smashed. COVID changed that, right? Because people didn't sell their home. They moved to their second home or their holiday home to, to ride out the lockdowns. Um, and then they moved there permanently. And then also, and then they sold their city place potentially because they could do remote work and they always wanted to live there anyway. That's why they bought a holiday home. Um, but also you've got home buyers moving there. So if I'm going to buy into a holiday home um, like town, it can't just be a holiday home in town. It needs to have its own owner-occupier driven demand and people willing to move there from the capital city and ideally commutable. I think the return to work thing's, you know, a lot of people thought in 2020, I'm never going back to the office. I can move completely regions. 2021, they said, oh, no, we've got to get within an hour. Then late 2021, no, we can go back to the regions again. 2022, I mean, you know, a lot of companies are trying to get people back to the office, right? You know, at least two, three days a week in a lot of companies, right? And so you want to be ideally in that one and a half to two hours max, absolute max from the city. Um, and it has to have a really strong owner-occupied. So it has to have good schools, you know, if you're going to high-income family moving to this regional town, there's no good schooling options. Um, you know they're not going to really move there, right? Uh, has to have you know good infrastructure and easy to get to the city. Has to have a bit of um, not too remote. You know, if you're going to move from a city to somewhere really remote, it's you know only a certain part of that population is going to want to do that. So you want to have a little local vibe. 
if you can get that, if you can get the owner-occupier demand plus the second home demand, I feel like second homes are much bigger in 20 post-COVID than they were because a lot of people think, well, yeah, I can do my flexible days down there and I just go and live my city home two or three days in these times, whereas before it was five days in the city. So second homes are good. Obviously, the holiday homes, um, you know, is always a part of the market for people who, you know, just want to come on weekends. Uh, okay, I'll give you one more. What about like, you know, I've, I don't want to spend that much, but I can, I can probably afford one of these house and land packages. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, and this is, a, this is, and it, I, I do laugh there, but you know, the reality is, um, what is a lot of investors buy is new, you know, um, yeah. and there's a number of reasons why. Um, the real reason is why it's because they're being spruced that idea by someone, right? And usually someone who's selling that new property or a company, unfortunately, like a financial advisor or a brokerage. Um, or an accountant, accountants are obviously the worst, unfortunately the worst at this, I, I would say, um, <laughs> is because they get sold the dream that depreciation benefits and tax write-off is the reason to buy an investment property, not to build wealth, um, is to save money on tax. And the reason people go and buy house and land packages, new townhouses, new apartments, is that, yes, they, um, you know, they and they they think that they've got less maintenance and they, they're easier to rent out, all these sort of fallacies. Um, and so... Yeah, you go and buy this new Greenfield estate, okay, but when you buy that thing, it's a brand new building, but if you ever go look at a building that was new in 2020, go look at it now, it doesn't look so new. The kitchen's looking pretty tatty, uh, the gardens, you know, the, all the building, all the materials have changed, the light switch, the oven, everything's depreciating, right? So the reason they, the government allows you to use depreciation is because you're buying an asset that actually is depreciating. And when you go and sell it one day, is you've got this new house and land package where you've got an old house, um, that's you know three four years old. That's nowhere near new. That's gone down in value. The house portion, the land itself isn't scarce because it's a farm that was cut up into three four square hundred square meter blocks. And so the problem with buying those type of assets is there's no scarcity. They can always build more. You're also putting most of your money into the build, which is the part of the the investment that goes down in value. And when you sell it one day, why would someone? Most of those markets are driven by owner occupiers as well, rather mm. than sort of. Uh, renters. It's harder to rent out house and land packages. People say, if I'm going to move all the way out there, I don't want to rent, I'm going to buy. Um, and so it's, you get issues with tenants uh, and the quality of tenant as well, if you get any issues with tenants. But ultimately, when you go and sell it one day, a new buyer says, why would I buy that house and land package for 500000 or 700000 when I can buy a brand new one at this new development a kilometre mm. down the road for the same price? And so you get a lot of sideways movement and growth um, yeah, you maybe got some depreciation tax benefits and it feels like you're making money. But the big irony with depreciation, which I'll just throw in here, is that what it does is it reduces your cost base. If you buy something at 500, if you depreciate that asset to say 450 through these tax write-offs, when you sell it, you pay more capital gains tax because the ATO uses a cost base of 450 rather than 500. So a lot of the depreciation benefits get added back into you. You end up paying more capital gains tax. Um, Mm. That's the final reason why we don't go anywhere near that. Um, to give you an idea on commissions, we go nowhere near new property. Obviously, we work with individual buyers agents all over the country, not one company. We work with three or four in the inner west of Sydney, you know, four, three or four in the lower North Shore, more than that in the east of Sydney, you know, individual ones um, all over the country. Um, and we never receive anything. That's just, just putting it out there. But the reason a lot of people and accountants, financial advisors and brokers work with these organisations is the commissions they get are enormous it could Huge. be five to ten percent times the, the value of the property so if it's a five hundred thousand dollar property it could be 25 to 50 grand commission that goes to the salesperson 
that then I'll pass on, you know, 10 or 20 or 50% of that to the person pushing, you know, introducing them. Um, yeah. And so, so that's another reason that, and that money's got to come from somewhere. It comes from the developer profits. The developer profits come from the, um, the sale price um, and, and that ends up flowing through somewhere. Yeah, that's um, a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and I was chatting to a guy the other day and he was saying, oh, you know, I've got my accountant set me up in this uh, SMSF with my advisor. And I go, oh, how did you meet the advisor? And he goes, oh, I was referred from the accountant. I said, oh, how'd you get the property? Oh, the accountant told me to buy the property. And I was thinking, uh, uh, well, first of all, maybe try and get some separation between those two people um, and get a second opinion because it might actually, you know, there might be a few changes there with that SMSF or with the property that you might need to think about. Um, and that's, and yeah, that's really good. Why point. that worries me there, Owen, is it's their super, right? Everyone sort of says, look, you know, I've got enough money in super and this is the danger. And, and this is why I thought the ATO would actually ban it. And there was a real, uh, in the Royal Commission, it was recommended in other parliamentary inquiries. It was um, recommended that, you know, you shouldn't be able to leverage your super. The reason they were pushing for ending it is they knew people were butching their super funds, right? Mm. This person, they had 150 grand in their super fund. They've gone and bought a $500,000 house and land package. Maybe it's, they had 200 grand in their super fund. You can't leverage as much, right? So, um, and they've gone and wasted their super, which could have compounded in a low-cost fund and compounded for the next 30 or 40 years and, and growing. Now they're blowing it in a, in a, in a poor property. Um, so we very rarely encourage our clients to use their self-managed super funds or, or talk to them about that. We very rarely do loans in it. Um, like if it were done under five in the last year, uh, it's usually only people who are putting in the maximum have got big balances in their super um, that can do both. They can diversify into a quality asset plus keep a good portion um, growing in the stock market for their retirement. Mm, that's a really good point. Um, and this is where a good um, advisor can also help like playing a part in education piece as well. Um, not necessarily on the property side or the, the credit side and the financing side, but maybe on the strategy side. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, mate. So we've talked about um, first-time investors buying quality. It matters. In the next episode, we're going to talk about quantity or at least the portfolio investor for someone that is thinking, okay, I'm going to actually, this is going to be my primary wealth creation strategy. How do I you know, build this portfolio right out? Uh, we talked about buying quality in and around major cities, how the, the work from home, the commute has shifted things. You can find quality in regional areas or even by the bay, but you want to focus on that high middle income, like the owner occupier purchaser um, that is going to buy that house from you or is at least seeking that that in that area so there's this is a great uh foray into investing in property the next episode portfolio investor chris bates from wealth mortgage broker former financial advisor mate it's a pleasure um thanks for joining me on the program yeah and i just saw a final thing there i'll throw in there as well Owen, is around the sort of first time investor is you've got it like with shares um is have a really long-term view right yeah, you're not trying point. to you're not trying to you know, pin the perfect place to enter the market and then sell it in three years' time because what you're doing is you're trading property, right? It's very dangerous to sort of the buy costs are so high, the sell costs, the maintenance, sunk costs, um, et cetera. Then you've got to pay capital gains tax. Our belief with property is just get a quality asset, one or two, and think 30 or 40 years down the line. It sounds crazy because if you do that with a quality asset, you get 10 years down the lines, the rents have gone up. Now it's sort of washing its face and maybe a little bit positively geared. And then you go, look, why would I sell it, right? I don't need to sell it. If I do sell it, I'm going to pay this capital gains tax, but I'm going to keep it for another decade. 
Mm. Right. And then in 20 years time, you know, the rents have gone up even more. Um, maybe you've paid off your own mortgage. Maybe that's almost start paying itself off as well. Cause the rents now not only covering interest, it's also paying down the capital. Um, and then you say, well, you know, why would I sell it now? It's still the same fundamentals, restricted supply still appeals to super, you know, high income families. There's less of them on the market. I'm going to keep it for another 10 years. And even when you get to retirement you say, well, um, why would I sell it now? I might as well use my super first, you know, um, and start draking money out of there because otherwise I'll pay these big capital gains taxable. So I'll wait another 10 years and I'll use the rental income to supplement my, you know, my super income, et cetera. So you've got to have this really long-term mindset, I think, with property rather than sort of I want to make money in the short term and start and fall for all the hotspotting sort of research out there and, you know, trade. I'll buy in this hotspot, then I'll sell it, and then I'll buy in this place. You could, would have done much better just buying a quality asset and then just, you know, focusing on life rather than focusing on trading property. And it's also peace of mind, isn't it? Um, it's a lot simpler. So, um, yeah, we'll talk more about some of the risks in the next episode. Chris, yeah. awesome. pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Owen. Talk soon.